Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let us pray together. <clears throat> Father, I just ask that you would please bless us and keep us. That you would drive this passage deep down into our hearts this morning and reveal to us the Christmas light. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's begin with this first uh, Christmas truth. Christ inaugurates a new exodus to deliver us from darkness. Christ inaugurates a new exodus to deliver us from darkness. Now, as you think about this story and you think about the wise men coming and being there with Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, Joseph and Mary must have been uh, so comforted by the appearance of these men. Um, as they bow before the child and they worshiped and they brought their gifts and, and they continued uh, their worship there before them, uh, they must have thought about all the wondrous things that had already been spoken about the child. If you remember any of the Christmas story, the angels came and spoke to, to Joseph and talked about the child. The angel came to Mary and announced the child. The, 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 the Spirit led Mary to go to see Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth greeted Mary, you know, her child jumped in the womb and she proclaimed wondrous things about the child. The shepherds, as they heard the angels sing, came and gave homage to the child. They took the child, Jesus, to the temple to be circumcised. And there the prophetess Anna came and she spoke about the child. And then Simeon came and he held the child. And he spoke some ominous words as well. He said these words, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is op opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So despite the comfort, and despite being there with these strangers from the east, at this point in the Christmas story, the sword is now beginning to pierce. The wise men had just left. And, and I'm sure that they were still kind of stirred up and excited and, and perhaps maybe even the awe of everything still lingering on them. They, they had trouble going to sleep. But finally, sleep overtook them. 
And then all of a sudden, it was like Joseph was wide awake, but he's not. He's in a dream. And as he dreams, the angel comes to him and he says, get up, Joseph, get up, get your things together. Take this child and the mother and flee to Egypt. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So then he wakes up and you can almost see him. He looks like Jimmy Stewart in that movie, you know, where he's looking at the camera. He's like, oh my goodness. He gets up, he gets his family together. Because see, Joseph, we see in the text that he knew that the Lord was to be trusted and obeyed without question. So immediately this takes place, and that's how the text reads it. Immediately they departed in the night and they took off to Egypt. And the text informs us, though, as they're doing this, that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call my son. Now this is incredibly interesting. It is. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And Matthew is pulling a quote from Hosea chapter 11. And, and he's, he's teaching us about prophecy here and how it works. So in Hosea, to show the wonder of the love of the Lord uh, through the mouth of the prophet, uh, he reminded, God reminded Israel that when they were still groaning under the yoke of slavery in Egypt, and they were in bondage, he had set his love on them as a people. They were his people. They were his nation. And so he said, Hosea said in chapter 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. However, in Matthew's writing, we see yet a greater prophetic fulfillment of these words. So you have that which happened in Egypt. You have that which the prophet Hosea speaks of. And then here in Matthew, he quotes Hosea looking back there. What is going on here? It tells us a lot about biblical prophecy. The first thing it tells us is it's not always about future telling. You know, when you hear about prophecy or anything like that, and you see some of the, the, the things that go on in, in, Christian, in the Christian world and things like that, people are talking about what's yet to come, what's yet to come. This is pointing back. Isn't it incredible? Why is it pointing back is the question. Well, biblical prophecy is not so much about foretelling as it's about foretelling. Okay? It's not so much about foretelling as it is foretelling. And so what Matthew is doing here is he is describing something that, that is into a crescendo, if you will. Look at it like this. Biblical prophecy is like a seed. A seed is planted, and it sprouts up a little seedling. And then it grows into a little plant of some sort. Maybe it's a tree. It grows into a little tree, a little Charlie Brown tree type of thing. And then it grows. It becomes a full, uh, fully mature, beautiful piece of, of, of beauty that is a tree. That's how it happens. And so that's what this is like. Biblical prophecy actually unfolds like a seed does. Or maybe to put it a different way, it's like a piece of beautiful music. Sometimes, those Olivia took a, a covenant this semester, she took a class on music appreciation. And in that, she had to listen to all these pieces of music and learn how to listen to it and think about it. And it's, you know, all these beautiful pieces. Well, sometimes in those pieces, there is a theme that starts out very quietly, kind of in the background. But it grows and it grows through that piece of music until it, it, it swells up to this wondrous beauty. 
That's what's going on here when we talk about biblical prophecy. So here in the fulfillment of Hosea 11, it is to be understood that what God was doing in history was giving them a picture of the true and final spiritual exodus that would bring that he would bring to pass through his son Jesus who would be coming out of Egypt. So what he's saying is this, look back people. Look back in the book, see what God did when he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. But when you bring them out of slavery, when you bring them out of bondage, that doesn't necessarily mean they're free, does it? Even our nation's history points to that, doesn't it? But, when God sets us free on a spiritual level, we are free indeed. And so when He says, look back at Egypt, look back, what's coming is going to be even greater. You think that was something? This is greater. This is much more impressive. And so Matthew is connecting to Exodus in the Pentateuch. And he is and has in, and in mentioning Hosea to what Jesus has come to do in the fullness sense, he points out amazingly that Christ Jesus pierces our darkness as he inaugurates a new Exodus. Now, to grasp the fullness of this, where it really impacts us, we need to understand the fact that we're in darkness. We need to grasp that. That spiritual darkness is, is in our hearts out when we're outside of Christ Jesus. So those who are outside of Christ Jesus are in bondage to and under the power of sin. This darkness lies at the core of our heart, and we all know it to be true, don't we? Perhaps it comes in a desire for something that is not yours. Perhaps it could come in small waves of anger at God because of His providence in a particular life situation. Uh, the other day, I, uh, something happened. I, I, right now, I can't remember what it was. I'm just being honest with you. I don't remember what it was. But I remember being angry at God. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? <laughs> Maybe it is the impulse that says, no one is going to tell me what to do. One writer put it this way. We can press down and hide those deep natural instincts even from our own selves. We want to be seen as that kind of loving person. And we want to see ourselves in that light too. However, no amount of counseling, no amount of education, no amount of medication can truly remove that. According to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from the self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and self-absorption of every human heart. Each of us wants the world to orbit around us and our needs and our desires. We do not want to serve God or our neighbor. We want them to serve us. In every heart then, what is exposed is an actual many, Herod the Great. But listen, while we're in darkness, lost in the power of sin, the Son, Jesus, came to pierce 
light into that darkness and to inaugurate a new exodus. The true and real and final exodus. But there's more. There's more here in this text. Look at the next Christmas truth. Christ ends our exile and darkness. So he ends our exile and darkness. In verse 17, we see another prophetic statement fulfilled from Jeremiah. In the context, Herod soon discovers that the wise men had been a little tricksy, if you will. They're a little tricksy there. And they flew into a rage. And they were ang- and he was angry. And he commanded the murder of every little boy two years old and under who lived in Bethlehem. And in that surrounding areas, as determined by the age ascertained from the wise men. Then the, text, then the text says that this was in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. Tim read the text. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. <clears throat> so the question is, what's going on here? What's going on in this text? What does that mean? Well, to understand that, you have to go back in Israel's history. Okay, so Ramah was the place where the king of Babylon gathered Israelites and he gathered those Israelite captives together to take them into exile. So what would happen here is if you know the story, the best of the best went into exile into Babylon, right? So the other people were brought and they, and they were brought there as well. Some of them were slaughtered. They were killed. Others were beaten and chained, and they had hooks put in their noses so they could be led along the way, and they were taken off to Babylon. Now, if you remember, that's about where the wise men came from. It's about a 900 to 1,000 miles journey. So who knows how many people died along the way. Historically, this is a horrific thing. And so Rachel is brought up in Jeremiah here. And so what is going on with Rachel? Why does she appear in this story? What does she have to do with this? Well, her grave is near Ramah. And so what Jeremiah is doing here is he's figuratively painting a picture for us of Rachel. Alive and well, standing at the foot of her grave, watching her children be slaughtered and and, and chained and drug off. To a land that is far, far away. And she's weeping. Now if you know anything about the history in Genesis. She is the woman who cried out to her husband. Give me children Jacob or I die. She was in competition with her sister to have more. Or her, her um, how do you say that? What is that? Her other wife counterpart there. <laughs> Just, he had two wives, remember? So he has this other wife and she's competing. But Rachel, Rachel, she cries out, give me children or I die. So she's figuratively watching. Jeremiah puts her figuratively watching as her children are taken off to a land that is far away from the promised land. We're not Jewish. We have no idea. We're not Israelites. We have no idea. I mean, what would it be like to have... Uh, the Chinese government take over America and come into our places and ship us off over to China or wherever. We have never faced that in this nation. It's frightening. They did. So Rachel was weeping. So the parallel is clear here. 
In the slaughter of Bethlehem's children, Rachel is in her grave and she's weeping again. There's not that many children. And okay, you have to be careful in saying that. One is too many, right? But there were probably estimated between 25 and 100 children here. But still, that's 25 to 100 families weeping for their children. Two years old and younger being killed. She's weeping. These children, two are no more. And the child who was the object of Herod's wrath has been driven off into exile. He's fleeing to Egypt with great weeping, at least by Rachel, echoing behind him. Now, truth be told, um, this weeping has been going on since the fall in the garden. There's great sorrow and sadness in this world. Um, You think about it just for a minute. The the loss of a cherished loved one. And especially at Christmas, our hearts can be drawn toward that. And we can be looking to that and be thinking, oh, I miss them so much. Um, Maybe it's dark times of sorrow and brokenheartedness over other matters. Like, for for example, uh, rejection. Or, Or maybe it's betrayal. Or maybe it's abuse. The issue that we have before us here is is that whatever it is that causes our our insights to desire to weep, or at least quickly bury those thoughts as unthinkable, because if I think about them too much, I will weep. When that occurs, and when there's also periods of wondering if that sadness of the curse will ever, ever be righted, and things will be normal, whatever that is, because we don't really know what normal is, Here Matthew is saying that the tears of exile that Rachel wept from her grave, the very theme of the rejection of God and the curse after the rebellion has swelled to its hole. The time for a full measure of consolation is at hand as he points us to what Jesus has come to do. The angel has already said it if we've been listening. Earlier in Matthew, uh, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is destined to return from Egypt in order to save all who put their trust in him. And when he returns from Egypt and he grows as a young man and he stands as as, uh, the Messiah teaching and gathering people to him, you will hear him say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will voice the utterance, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And John tells us that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So what is Christmas about, you ask? It is about an exodus from our exile and darkness. Rachel 
Do not be disheartened any longer. Christ has come to end the exile. Behold, the darkness is over. Light has come into the world. So what are we to do with this light? What are we to do with this? What is our response? Christ is our gift of light to receive. Our third point, Christ is our gift of light to receive. I came in the other evening and I was, um, uh, you know, Livia McKay had their wisdom teeth cut out and there's been a lot of laying around and lounging around this week. And uh, so I came in and the little kids, I think it was the little kids actually were watching one of their little TV shows. And this is one of those little teeny bopper shows. That's what I call them anyway. And in the teeny bopper show, um, there were some friends and they were all gathered together and they were going to do a secret Santa. And this was like the second year they'd done it. They all hated it, but they were going to do it because one of the girls wanted them to do it. So they were going to do the secret Santa. They weren't happy about it. So anyway, this year's theme in the secret Santa gift exchange was to give a gift that expressed what you think about the person. And so they all gathered in their little meaning circle area, semi-circle area, you know, because they have to show them on TV. And so they're sitting there, and um, uh, and they begin to open up the gifts, and they were not at all what they expected. As a matter of fact, they were all angry. Why would you buy me this? What is this about? And some of them at least kind of know who the the giver is at this point, but but the girl who kind of was leading the, the ring of giving was saying, look, let's find out what these are really about. And so they began to talk. And they began to discuss the reason for the gift. And what happened is, is that the gifts exposed the deeper level of who they truly were. For example, one of them was very interesting to me. The girl got a beautiful clock, but it was broken. And in the package, there were instructions on how to fix it. And so the girl looked at her and says, why did you give me a broken clock? And she said this, because ever since I've known you, you realize you're broken and you're trying to fix yourself. And you don't have to do that. Now here's the thing, there was no gospel message after that which breaks my heart. But isn't that where the gospel message should come? We are broken. And we're always trying to fix things. We're always trying to pull ourselves out of the light. Or or I should say out of the darkness into the light. But Jesus has come for that. Jesus has come for that. He is a gift. And that gift exposes us. And sometimes it's humbling to recognize that Jesus truly knows who we are. That He knows our innermost thoughts, our innermost private sins. It's It's humiliating to realize that He knows us even more than we know ourselves. And what's even more humiliating is we know that because of that, and in light of that, that's the reason He came. Let that sink in. He knows we're broken. He knows we're trying to fix ourselves. And He came anyway. And He is a gift. And sometimes we reluctantly don't want to receive that gift. It's just too much. Because we see that we are indeed little Herod the Greats. That we desire to be our own kings. And so maybe we shun it for that reason. But 
But in that exposing, let it reveal. Let it reveal that even though we are broken, and He has exposed that to us, that if we had all the time in the world, we would not be able to fix it. All the time in the world will not fix it. And so we carry not only the scars of loss, but the ability to wound and to hurt others. And time is running out. So the gift of Jesus actually undoes us by fully exposing who we truly are. But this gift not only came to strip us down and to reveal this to us, but did not come to shame us. He came out of steadfast love to offer us the great and glorious hope. The end of the darkness. The light has come. A Savior is offered to set us free. So the only thing I'm asking you to do this morning is to receive this gift. The Lord Himself. We receive Him. Hear this, nothing nor more be done. No barrier between you and God. No barrier between God's love and you. And as far as God is concerned, all your sins washed away. He will accept you as you are. But He will not leave you as you are. Come, not in your own name, but in His name. For in His name, you are welcome. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We ask that You would fill us with joy as we come to this table knowing that You came for us. Lord, cause in us a a desire to see Christmas, even though we've heard the words time and time again, to see Christmas different. To see it from your perspective. The darkness. And the light. That pierces our darkness. And shows us the way. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.